pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I want to share with you a message which resonated with me a lot. Um, God with us in the desert valleys. You know, often we can we think that we can experience God's goodness when everything seems to be going well. But what about those times when everything is not going well? Um, a lot of people have this view that, you know, God is there and when things are smooth and everything is, is running, um, yeah, his presence is there. Uh, but where, where does he go when things aren't running smoothly? Um, I want to share a, share a story with you. I remember back in 2013, we were up in Brisbane. My family's from Brisbane. And so we're up there visiting family. And we had a, at, the, at that time we had a two-year-old, Sophie, and Ellie had just turned about three months old. So we had two girls, we've now got three. Um, and we were, in, we were in Brisbane visiting family, Christmas time, catching up with everyone. And we're at the, at the shops, as you tend to go to the shops before Christmas, especially if you have kids, you spend a bit of time there. And we got a phone call. And the phone call was from my wife's father. I'll just see if this is really working. Can, we, can you go to the next slide for me, James? The clicker doesn't seem to be working. So um, on the right, um, that's my wife, Julie. And I know what you're thinking. He's batting way above his average. That's very true. Um, on the left is her sister, Belinda. So we got a phone call from Julie's dad saying, B, Belinda's been in a car accident. Um, they're taking her to the Princess Alexandra Hospital. Uh, we don't really know any more than that, but we're all going there just to see what's going on. So we're, I think we were coming out of Big W and we were going to buy a few things. We just put them back. We walked straight out to the kids. We hopped in the car. We drove to the hospital. And from what we'd heard, um, she had been um, in a car accident uh, and they said, look, she might have a few broken bones. Um, so we thought, okay, that's, that's manageable. We, we can deal with that. Um, but apart from that, we had no other information. And so we were sitting in a waiting room next to the emergency. There was myself, my wife, our kids were in there, um, Julie's dad, um, her stepmom and her, her stepsister. And we saw them wheel um, a cart past and we recognised the face. It was B. Um, she had more than just a broken leg. Um, she was bruised everywhere. She was unconscious. They had tubes coming out of everywhere. And as soon as we saw her, we went, this is, this is not good. This is not what we were expecting. This is not what we were hoping for. This, is, this wasn't the plan we had for this Christmas. They took her into ICU and we moved up into the ICU waiting room and we took turns two at a time. Uh, once they'd uh, stabilised her as much as they could, uh, we took turns going in and just standing by her bedside. They said, look, she can still hear you, so you can talk to her. Um, she, she wasn't responding, she was in a coma, but they said, you can talk to her because she'll recognise your voice. 
And so two by two, we went in and sat by her bedside and spoke to her. We did our best to hold it together when we were there next to her. Um, but as each couple came back out of the, out of the room, into the waiting room, um, there was just this sense of, man, what can we do? God, wh- where are you in this? And it's, it's one of those times where, you know, there was, there was just so much going on in our heads. There's so many questions, so many thoughts, so many emotions. And it's in those moments you can often wonder, God, where are you in all of this? Where, where's your presence? What are you doing here? There's a verse in Matthew, and this one's probably an easy one to remember, Matthew one twenty three, Matthew one two three. It says, The virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the verse you often hear quoted at Christmas time, um, but it's relevant every single day because Jesus, his name that they were to give him was Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So what does it actually mean when God is with us? You know, we have often those good experiences in life. We've, we've got a two-year-old. Um, her name's Abigail. She's full of life. She's speaking a lot. Uh, she's discovered her words. She's also discovered her will and that she has some control over that. And we are discovering how she tests that regularly. Uh, but near where we live, there's this hill. And as you go over the hill, as you look out on your left, there's these fields. You get a, v- a really good view. And pretty much every time we come up this hill, as soon as she sees what's over there, she goes, yay, and starts clapping. It's this, for me, it's, it's the simplest way to describe what it's like to have a mountaintop experience. She sees it and she goes, yeah, this is, this is good. Uh, and there's just a joy in her. Uh, you know, we have those moments. You know, you get the job you've always wanted. Um, you do the interview, they say, hey, you've got the job, and you, you're just excited. You're like, yeah, God, this is good. Um, you have your wedding day, and you see the, the person that you love you're going to spend the rest of your life with, either up the front or you see them walking down the aisle, and you go, yeah, this, this is good. God, this is good. Um, I'm not sure. If you've got kids and they sleep through, you go, yeah, this is good. Uh, <coughs> we have those really those experiences where things are just going well. But then we also have those times where instead of being on a mountaintop, it feels like you're in this dry, desolate valley. It's empty. Uh, there's no one else around. It's barren. It doesn't look great. There's no clapping going on. And you, you probably know what they're like. Instead of getting a job, maybe it's losing a job. Um, instead of marrying the person of your dreams, it's breaking up with them. Instead of kids sleeping through the night, it's kids not sleeping at all um, or being really sick or someone being diagnosed with, uh, with cancer. or uh, You know what those moments are like. In the Bible, it often talks about valleys as being a metaphor for these tough places, these things where just life isn't going well. Um, you think... What are some of the stories in the Bible that talks about valleys? David fought Goliath in a valley. Um, they had to walk through a valley um, 
the shadow of death. David, David talks about that. Um, valleys are these metaphors for when just life is tough. Things are hard. And I want to share with you a story um, that illustrates what it's like in these valleys. Because there's, th- there's a quote, and I, I love this. James, you want to go? To, oh, working. We may enjoy God on the mountaintops, but we get to know him intimately in the valleys. On the mountaintops, we get to experience God's goodness and what it's like to be with him and when he just pours out all his blessings. But when you go through those valleys where things are tough and it's difficult, that's where you really know, get to know what God is like and who God really is. So if you've got a, a device or a Bible on a budget, open up to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19 and I'll give you a little bit of context as to what's been happening. So up until uh, at this point, this is the, the time of Elijah, one of the prophets of God, um, speaking to the people of Israel and Judah. And uh, the king at that time was a guy called Ahab. Now, Ahab was a nasty piece of work. He was against God, against God's prophets. He did basically the opposite of what God told his people to do. Um, so he was going right against, contrary to what God wanted. Now they say, but every, you know the quote, behind every good man there's an even greater woman. In this case, behind every bad man, there happens to be an even badder, that's not an English word, an even worse woman. Um, so his wife was Jezebel. And Jezebel was just, um, a, she was a piece of work. She was evil, she was conniving, and I guess this is good evidence of how horrible she was. Do you know anybody called Jezebel? Does anybody call their daughter Jezebel? I've never met one, and I think it's because we know this story, and it's just, she's just a nasty piece of work. So, Elijah is there speaking for God, Ahab and Jezebel... Uh, against Elijah, trying to fight him. He comes and he says, before chapter 19, he says, look, um, God says there's going to be no more rain until I say so. And so there is no rain. Nothing grows. There's a drought. There's a famine. Elijah goes off. He's fed by ravens. God provides for him miraculously, both through the ravens bringing him food, but also through uh, this, this widow who has this this bag of flour that just never runs out. She keeps using it and using it, but it just keeps being replenished. And so Elijah sees God provide in all these amazing ways. And then he, he meets Ahab and he says, all right, we're going to have this showdown. You've been saying that your, your gods that you guys worship are the real ones. I've been standing up for God. We're going to see who's actually true. And everyone can make a decision as to who they're going to worship. So they have this big showdown on this place called Mount Carmel. And it's kind of, uh, I don't know, if you're into Transformers, it's kind of the uh, Autobots versus the, who, who are the other ones? No, no Transformers. Star, um, Star Wars, light side, dark side. It's kind of good versus evil, ta- having this showdown on this mountain. And as it takes place, um, God shows up in a huge way for Elijah. It's the top of a mountain. It's a it's this real encouraging experience. And then Elijah prays for rain, and this massive rainstorm comes, 
and he, he goes back to Jezreel, which was where Ahab and Jezebel had their palace. So all these things have happened. That's kind of the background to 1 Kings 19. What he also does is he actually, um, they kill off all of these prophets who were of these other gods, Baal and, and Ashtoreth and these other gods that they'd worshipped. So they kill these people off and Ahab, the nasty king, goes back to his queen and tells her everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message, messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. She is angry. She is, she is mad. She is saying to Elijah, what you did to my prophets, I'm going to do to you. Your days are numbered. Now, Elijah has seen God work, seen God protect, seen God do all these things for him. But when there's an angry woman having a crack at him, he is scared and he runs. Have a look at what it says in verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. If you are married and you have had your wife upset about something, you might be able to relate to verse 3. Um, <clears throat> Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And he doesn't, I mean, you know, we think, okay, he just ran to his house and hopped into his bed. No. Keep reading. It says, He ran from Jezreel when he came to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there. Now, I want to pause for a second because... When we read that, we go, yeah, okay, he ran. Good on him. Jezreel to Bathsheba in a straight line is about 200 Ks. This wasn't just some jog in the park. This guy ran and ran and ran. He made Forrest Gump look like he was a little athletics. This guy just 200 Ks. He didn't stop running, but then he leaves his servant there. Verse 3, and then verse 4, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom, a broom bush, sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. He's at this point. He's tired. He's scared. He's alone. He's fearing for his life. He doesn't know what's coming next. And he says, I'm done. God, I'm out. I'm tapping out of this race. I'm finished. I don't want any more to do with this. I just want to die. You may not have felt as extreme as that, but we can all relate to that experience where you're, you're exhausted. You're at the end of your rope. You just, hey, I'm done with this. I want out. Yeah, maybe it's a, it's a job and the colleagues or the boss is just on and on and on, and you just can't seem to get on with him. He's irrational, he's unrealistic, and just makes life really tough. Maybe it's a, a family relationship where it just never seems to be pleasant or easy or simple or supportive or encouraging, and it's just difficult and tough, and you're just like, 
I'm done. I, I don't know if I can keep doing this anymore. I was playing tennis last week, Friday afternoon. I got a phone call from a friend who, um, he lives up in the hills in, on Mount Dandenong. And so reception's dodgy at the best of times. And it was cutting in and out, but all I heard him say was, do you know anyone else who knows how to mix medication? Uh, that doesn't sound good. Um, <coughs> and so I, I texted him and said, hey, just, just stay there. I felt God saying, you need to go up to this guy. Um, and God doesn't talk to me like that often. Um, and I texted back and said, hey, just, hey, don't do anything. I'm coming up. He's like, no, nah, it's all right. I'll just take the whole lot and see what happens. I drove up there. He was in his, um, he was lying in his bed. He was just barely responsive. Uh, you, you could slap him on the face and he would just kind of open an eye and that would be about it. Um, I tried to talk with him. He wasn't responding. He'd taken a whole bunch of stuff. And I realized talking to his, his wife, He'd done an altercation with his partner next door. I mean, with his, his neighbor next door. And this neighbor would just, would just keep pushing and pushing and pushing this guy. He would keep saying things and antagonizing him and speaking down to him and swearing at him and yelling at him. And it just kept going on and on and on. And he got to the point where he was like, I can't, I can't take this anymore. I, I can't do this. He, he knew what Elijah felt like. He uh, he got to hospital. We called an ambulance. Uh, they they came and and checked him out. And they said, "Yeah, we've got to get him. We've got to get him down to the hospital." Um, took him down to the hospital. They managed to flush his system out. Um, he probably yeah. They said that he didn't have too much longer. Um, if if the ambulance hadn't come when it did, then he probably wouldn't be here today. Caught up from this week. And he said, yeah, look, I was, I was just done. I didn't know how I could handle this guy anymore, handle life anymore. It was just too much. Fortunately, he's, he's come through that, and now he can see the other side, and he can see the future, and he can see that, yeah, God, as much as I felt God wasn't with me in that moment, I can now see that he was because I didn't want to be here, but obviously he wants me to be here. And Elijah's at that same spot. He's like, I'm done. I'm out. I don't want any more of this. He's exhausted. There's a, a Christian psychologist by the name of Henry Cloud. And Dr. Cloud says that often when we think that we're exhausted and tired, we usually misdiagnose our problem. Because you think about it, he says, if you're actually really tired and exhausted, theoretically, if you have a nap, you have a good night's sleep, and you wake up, if that's the problem then your cure should be sleep and you should feel better when you get up. Fair enough? But he says, for most people, they can get a good night's sleep and that doesn't cure it. That's not the solution because they're not actually, well, they're not just physically tired. Their spirit is just spent. They are, they are done. I, I feel like there's em I'm empty. There's nothing more in here. What, what can I do? And when you're spiritually spent, sleep can help, but what you really need is an encounter with God, the one who can refresh your spirit. Uh, 
And so jump back into 1 Kings 19. Elijah said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Verse 5, then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Now, I love what God doesn't do here. God doesn't go to him and say, come on, Elijah, you don't have enough faith. You need a bit more faith and things will be fine. You just got to look to the positive. He doesn't point his finger at him and say, hey, Elijah, man, you've got to change your attitude, buddy. You're just not thinking about this well. He doesn't do any of that. And this paints a picture of a God who's different to, to what so many people think. Elijah's asleep. And then it says, all at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Isn't that cool? God doesn't lecture him. God doesn't go into a sermon. That's not what he's like. Instead, he says, hey, you need to rest. You need to eat. Let me provide for what you actually need. And so Elijah wakes up. He looks around. There's some freshly baked bread and some water. And so he eats, he drinks, and then he lays down again. He gets some more rest. God knows what's ahead for him. God knows what the journey is going to look like for him for the next little bit. And so he says, this is what you need right now so that you can get through the next bit. And I'm encouraged by that. You and I, we don't know what's coming tomorrow or the next week, but God does. And so he says, hey, this is what you need. I will give you what you need to survive what's coming. And so he does that. Elijah goes back to sleep. And then in verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Yeah, God knows what you will need for the next days, weeks, months of your journey. He knows what you need and he can provide what you need. And I love the fact that when you are at your lowest point, God can actually use that for good. Your deepest need becomes a gift when it drives you to depend on him. Elijah's deepest need, he needed to know that he wasn't alone. Physically, he needed food. He needed rest. But also, he needed his spirit just to be refilled. To be his, he was empty. He needed his cup filled up, his, his barrel topped up. Whatever analogy you're used to, he needed that filling to take place in his life. And that's what God did. And so he travels to Horeb, He goes into this cave and he spends a night. Now, sometimes it would be nice to crawl into a cave and spend a night, maybe two, maybe a week, hoping that when you come out, things are different. He goes into this cave and then while he's there, the word of the Lord comes to him. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? And Elijah replies, I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. 
he's explaining to God what his situation is. This is what it's like, God. Let me lay it straight for you. You can hear. You can, you can tell I'm frustrated. You can tell I'm angry. You can tell this isn't fair. This doesn't seem right. This is, this is horrible. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Elijah's greatest need was for his spirit to be refilled, to be replenished, to have an encounter with God. And so God says, come on out. I want to walk past you. I want, to, I want you to be in my presence. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. So where was God? Where, where was God going to show up? If he wasn't in the, these natural things that we see and elements that exemplify power, show that there is, there is energy, there is uh, sovereignty. You know, think an earthquake, a fire, a cyclone. A lot of people think that's kind of what God is like. He is this big, vengeful guy who is there and he will just tear down in his fury. But God wasn't in any of those things. In verse 12, after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Now, I've read this lots of times and I wonder, God, if you want someone's attention, why don't you yell? Why don't you scream? Why don't you use those big things, those huge events, write something in the sky to say, hey, Elijah, I'm with you. And then everyone else can see, hey, Elijah, God is with you. Do something big, do something powerful, do something loud to get my attention to say that you're there. Instead, God whispers. And look what Elijah does. Verse 13, when Elijah heard it. If someone whispers, where do you have to be to be able to hear it? If someone whispers to you, you can't be far away. If you want to hear a whisper, you've got to be close. God whispers because he's near. He's there close to Elijah. He's right there with him through what he's going through. He's not distant. He's not far off. He's not some God that just is way up there somewhere in the heavens who manages things from afar. Instead, he's, he's close. He's near. He's there with Elijah. You remember when, when you're a kid, I'm not sure if you did this, if you wake up in the middle of the night and 
you're, you're scared or frightened and you're guaranteed there's something under your bed that's trying to get you, you, you do that, I'm so freaked out, I'm running faster than I've ever run before in my life, run to your parents' bed. Um, and you're running as if there is something right behind you. And you crawl into, your, into their bed and you know that, hey, I'm, I'm safe here. Everything's okay here. I'm, I'm close to my parents. They're going to look after me. You don't have to do a run to God's bed. You don't have to do a run to try and find and be close to God because he's already there with you and yours. He is right there. He is close. And James, if you can just go back one, there's a, a verse in Psalms. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He whispers because he's near. He whispers because he's close to you. In that hospital, uh, as we spent time in the ICU, in the waiting room, praying, thinking, questioning, wondering, we, we had a lot of opportunity to sense God's presence for him to show that he was there, that, that he was close. We, I sought God harder during those few days than I'd ever sought him before. We prayed, we pleaded. I made crazy bargains with God for what I would do if he could heal her. Um, our deepest need was comfort. Our deepest need was hope um, that God could do something. You know, it didn't stop the sadness. It didn't reduce the pain of seeing someone that we loved lying there helpless. And we spent four days in the ICU um, watching, praying, talking, crying. And after four days, there was zero brain activity. Um, the pressure in her brain had exploded. It, was, it had gone through the roof. And they said, she's, she's living off, off a ventilator. And so family made the decision, there's, there's nothing more we can do. Um, and she fell asleep for the last time. God didn't teleport us out of that valley. He didn't pick us up and say, hey, we're, I'm going to transfer you out of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take all the stuff that isn't going well and isn't going right, and I'm going to make it all good. He, he didn't heal her. He didn't perform the miracle that we prayed for. Instead, he came close, and he said, I cry with you. I grieve with you. I mourn with you. I am with you. You are not alone. Now, some of you might be in that place now, in that desert valley where things just seem horrible, um, where there doesn't seem to be any hope or future, and you're alone or you're scared or you're frightened. Um, but I want to encourage you to remember that God is still there, that God is close, 
that he doesn't leave, he doesn't abandon you, no matter what situation you're in, no matter how much it seems to be crumbling or falling apart, he doesn't crumble, he doesn't fall apart, he doesn't leave you. He is right there with you. And that's what Emmanuel means. It means God is with us through anything and everything that we go through. He is still with us. You know, that, that Christmas was both the most difficult and the most encouraging, if that's possible. It's difficult because it was our first Christmas without B. She would always bring the snacks. She always brought the snacks to every, every Christmas dinner. So we had to get the snacks, but we ate them in her memory. But it was the most encouraging because we were reminded that God is with us. And because Jesus is God with us, he knows what it's like. But not only that, the hope we have in his return means that we will see her again. That it isn't the end. And that's where the rubber meets the road. When you're in a desert valley and you need that reminder and that encouragement that God is there, the hope that we have in Jesus is what gets you through because it's real. You realize it's not just some cognitive idea. It's not just some, uh, some theology. It is a rock-solid belief. It is true and it is a faith that you can, you can rely on to get you through difficult times. I hope you can remember Matthew 1, 2, 3. Matthew 1, 23. The virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I want to invite the team up and come lead us through a closing song. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray with you um, and for you. And I, I want to ask that if, if you're going through that desert experience, that valley experience that I want to, I really do want to pray for you and that you will experience God's presence. I want to invite Nell up and we'll sing. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you that your promise is that you are always with us. Thank you for Jesus who is God with us. In him, in his name is, is comfort and hope. Lord, you know each person here and, and for those who are feeling like they're going through a, a desert valley at the moment my prayer Father is that they will seek you that they will find rest in you that they will take time to, to be with you Lord only you can truly refresh and restore a, a broken spirit you're close to the brokenhearted and as we see in Elijah's story God you are you're always near so Father may you be close may you be near and may those who are on mountaintop experiences praise you and, and celebrate those times with you those who are going through tough times whether it's work or family or relationships Whatever it might be, God, um, you know it doesn't escape and you are with them. Remind them that you can give them the strength to get through this, that there is hope for a future, either in the coming days, weeks or months. 
And sometimes, Father, that might be that we know that the future with you will be amazing when you return. And so that is what we hold on to and cling to. May that promise sustain us and keep us going. And may we just take time to rest in your presence. We pray in Jesus' amazing name. Amen.